Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Creditors Bargain Podcast. This is a show where I discuss corporate insolvency law with guests who are academics or practitioners from different jurisdictions. I'm your host, Akshaya Kamalnath, a senior lecturer at the Australian National University College of Law. So in today's episode, I talked to Ilya Kukurin, who is a PhD candidate and a teaching and research staff member at Leiden University. We talk about his article, Promotion of Group Restructuring and Cross-Entity Liability Arrangements, which was published in the Journal of Corporate Law Studies. You can find a link to the article in the show notes. I've also added links to related articles by Ilya in the show notes, which you can also refer to. Hi, Ilyas. Welcome to the show. Hi, actually. Happy to be here. So I really enjoyed reading uh, your paper. And I think it's an important thing that we come across is even outside of insolvency, while teaching corporate law, I've seen cases where there's cross-entity liability arrangements. So it's really interesting to see that your paper deals with this and its implications in the insolvency space. So can you maybe introduce what these cross-entity liability arrangements are and what tell us a little bit about why they are used just to get us started? Sure, and I'm happy to talk about this. And I think this is the subject that has been neglected, well, in my opinion, to some other subjects, you know, such as restructuring. So group restructurings and different tools that groups use to attract financing is very important to to take into account when discussing insolvency and restructuring law rules. So there are different arrangements that group entities enter into in the context of financing. So in my paper that was published in the Journal of Corporate Law Studies, I discussed a few of them. We can roughly divide them into intragroup support transactions, so transactions that aim to support attracting or securing better financing terms, such as cross guarantees. So cross guarantees are very typical for uh, group structures where one group entity provides a guarantee for the benefit of another group entity. Another one is co-datorship, when two companies act as co-data in the, in the uh, relationship, which is very similar to a cross-guarantee. And of course, we also see situations when one group entity provides a collateral for the benefit of another group entity. So those are support transactions, you can call them. And then there are contractual provisions, or so provisions or clauses in contracts, which aim at or result in binding the fates of several group entities. So among those are cross defaults and ipso facto clauses which operate on a group rather than on the individual entity basis. So those are quite distinct from, from support transactions and they also pursue or act in a different way. So I, I would uh, avoid generalizations in terms of why uh, companies enter into uh, cross entity liability arrangements because some of them pursue and act differently from others. And, and of course, you know, the, the, the cases that, you know, how I came up with this topic, I saw that in many large international cases concerning multinational enterprise group, we see that those transactions, different transactions are, are typically used and they cause quite some problems for courts to resolve and to secure the achievement of insolvency law goals, such as the, the preservation of the going concern value or protection of legitimate expectations, but 
we also see that some of these transactions embody the the principle of freedom of contract so how do you you know you don't want necessarily to to breach the freedom of contract so you have to kind of sort of balance different interests of creditors debtors group as a whole so it it, it is an exciting topic i believe to to do research and and to really dive into especially in the context of restructuring because that's where you actually want to protect the going concern value of of the whole enterprise you know not just of a single company which may be dependent uh, on other companies you know the existence of the company may be fully dependent on the synergies that are existing within the group but that's it's a very short kind of an overview of different different types of arrangements that i deal in in my PhD yeah. dissertation, but not necessarily in this particular article that I have that we're talking about today. So I, I just wanted to to paint, you know, the broader picture at this mm. point. Perfect. That's a good introduction, I think, to take us to further questions. You've actually, while answering this, mentioned ipso facto clauses, which I'll get to a little later because I think those are interesting. You also did a little shout out for goals of insolvency law, which I've been asking most guests in my podcast about. So I was happy with that. I just wanted to clarify on your second goal, you said protection of legitimate expectations. You mean contracting parties prior to insolvency, you want to protect what they their legitimate expectations from the contract is that what you mean yeah so whenever a credit enters into relationship with a debtor it has certain expectations right it has an expectation that the contract will be honored that for instance if there is a guarantee provided by another group entity that a creditor would be able to enforce a guarantee when for instance there is a default on the obligation so these are it's a more general principle which Professor Reinhard Borg explained in, in his book on principles of cross-border insolvency law. So legitimate expectations are very important for creditors to be able to calculate the risk of entering into transaction with the debtor. Right? And the better or the easier it is to calculate the risk, at least the idea is that the better financing terms the creditor can offer to the debtor. Mm. Right? So when I transact with someone, I want to know what are the risks and, and I want to rely on the guarantees or, or you know, other provisions in the contract that, that may exist, that they will be honored by the court. So that's, mm -hmm. that's what, in my opinion, legitimate expectations, yeah. but it's a very tricky one because legitimate expectations are formed by the way law is interpreted by courts. So if courts yeah. start to interpret rules differently, then we should assume that legitimate expectations will also change, right? Because they are formed by the totality of rules and their interpretation in, in a particular legal system or jurisdiction. Yeah. And also going back to what you were saying about how you were, you were giving us examples of these cross default agreements, what happens when someone defaults, etc. So clearly these intercompany arrangements are taking us to or planning for that default or insolvency or cash uh, flow, cash crunch point in time, right? So how has does it work, especially in the current emphasis on restructuring and rescue and those sort of mechanisms? How do these arrangements work there in that context? Well, interesting thing about restructuring is, at least if we look at most of the instruments, for instance, one of them, well, is the European Union Restructuring Directive, which was adopted in 2019. 
and has already been transposed in a number of member states. So it has many rules uh, which aim to promote restructuring, facilitate restructuring of, of viable enterprises, but it doesn't really have any rules on uh, enterprise groups. And this is quite interesting and, and unexpected in view of the fact that many large but also many medium-sized enterprises exist in the form of groups. And therefore, let's say when you try to restructure that of a single company, that may not really be helpful if other group members go down. So that, you know, you may end up with a single entity which cannot survive on its own. And, and therefore, group environments should also be considered in the context of restructuring. And then, of course, then the question is, how do we try to apply the, the restructuring tools and mechanisms in the context of groups? Right. And, and I've been thinking about it quite a, a bit. And I think whenever there is a complex situation such as a group and of course, you know, groups are very different from each other and they, they have very different structures, financing arrangements, organizational and, and managerial frameworks that they implement. One size fits all doesn't really work. So we, we have to see for each of the arrangements that I have mentioned, what would be the, the best tool to apply in order to, as you mentioned, facilitate the goals of insolvency law, which in most cases are preservation of value or maximization of value of, of the insolvency states or uh, equality of creditors and, and you know, many other principles that we have to look into. And these goals can only be achieved when we take into account the, the group interconnectedness and interdependencies. And you know, those are promoted or created by various cross-entity liability arrangements. And, and there are different ways that we can try to address them in law. And, and you know, in the article, I, also, I, I only look at two. So I look at the stay of enforcement action. So when, you know, usually when the company files for insolvency, but also for restructuring, there is a possibility of getting a, a stay against creditors running to courts and trying to grab the assets of, of, of a company, because otherwise the going concern value will be destroyed. And, and so that's something we don't want. So we have a stay of enforcement actions, right? So this is just one tool that, that, that many legal regimes employ. Another one is prohibition of ipso facto clauses. And, and you already mentioned, so ipso facto clause is quite interesting type of arrangement. So what they do, they allow a creditor to unilaterally terminate or accelerate or refuse future performance under a contract if something occurs. So usually that something is filing for, for restructuring or insolvency by the debtor or appointment of an insolvency practitioner. So, so these kind of events are usually uh, trig the ones that trigger um, contractual rights of a creditor to terminate unilaterally the contract well it comes from 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 latin ipso facto means from the fact itself so the interesting thing about ipso facto clauses that it's is that they don't they're not dependent on on any sort of default or or misbehavior by the debtor so they operate just by the fact that something has occurred and they're very problematic because they they may actually accelerate if a creditor terminates an important contract the debtor may be forced into bankruptcy, and therefore we uh, we see that many many jurisdictions have recently implemented rules which, to one extent or another, limit the effectiveness of these clauses. Of course, the U.S. was one of the first ones. It was done in the bankruptcy code quite a while ago, but many jurisdictions have only recently 
introduced rules that limit the operation of ipsa facto borders. Well, you perfectly know the probably the Australian example yeah. with all the the uh, the multitude of exceptions to to the uh, prohibition of ipsa facto clauses. But countries such as uh, the UK and the Netherlands have also very recently included rules against the operation of ipsa facto clauses. Right. So these are just uh, a couple of tools or or, or innovations that restructuring brings with it but the question remains how do we apply those tools in the group context right so if we look at the uh, most of the laws we we won't see any sort of hint you know how, what what do we do like the restructuring directive doesn't deal with group insolvency so how do we apply um, these tools in the group context right and I think this is a very interesting question that I was excited about and, and that's why I guess I've, I've written this article because it, it brings so many things together. You have to go back to, basically have to go to, back to the basics and see why do we have a certain rule and what, what does it try to achieve, right? And, and then taking that into account, you know, what, what is the principle underlying a rule and what function does it serve? Then we try to apply this rule to the group context. And, and yeah, that's what I've tried to do in the paper. You're right that it's uh, kind of shocking almost that it's not addressed in uh, the restructuring directive or any insolvency framework in other countries as well because so many companies function as enterprise groups right it's such a common thing so yeah it's an interesting paper to read and you've been you you give a number of examples in the paper about how countries are kind of dealing with it almost after the fact because you don't already have a solution and there's some solutions in domestic laws so can you give us some of those examples well, thank you, Akshay, very much for your uh, question. Firstly, I would say that, well, groups of companies is relatively a recent phenomenon. If we look into the history, mm -hmm. for instance, until uh, the end of 19th, early 20th century in the UK and in the US, companies could not own shares in other companies. So the groups mm -hmm. in our modern sense could not really arise, even though, of course, there are all sorts of debates about the early corporations such as Dutch East India and English East India companies. And I also look in those, into those in, in, my, in my PhD book, but of course... That should be exciting. It's very exciting. You know, there's so many discussions about whether those early multinational enterprises had limited liability. So we don't even know for sure if they had, but I think what is sure is that these early multinationals were not really groups in in the traditional or current sense because for instance everyone could own shares in the dutch east india company so we could uh, just easily buy shares in in those companies but we're not companies ourselves so mm. so and and of course the problem is that we have this idea of entity separateness right so the idea that companies exist each company is a separate island so to say with its own creditors its own assets and, and, and this is, for instance, explaining why this is the case. Richard Posner, writing in um, some time ago, wrote that it actually improves uh, monitoring. It decreases the monitoring costs and makes it easier for creditors to assess the risk. Because when you transact with a single entity, it's much easier for you to calculate the risks as compared to calculating the risk on the group basis, right? But in reality, you know, because of the existence of all sorts of arrangements that we have discussed, it doesn't really work because, for instance, 
cross guarantees or you know intercompany guarantees they actually perforate limited liability so what they do and and this is something that professor wyden from 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 the us has described as substantive consolidation by contract so what they do the intercompany guarantees they they perforate limited liability for the benefit of a single creditor Anyways, long story short, these are very difficult concepts and very difficult topics to address on the European level, right? So because there are so many different types of regulations that exist on the country level, and some countries acknowledge the existence of a group interest, for instance, whereas others don't. It's a very complicated problem to be addressed and harmonized on the whole European level. So and and interestingly banks have a very different regulation you know we have the bank recovery resolution directive adopted in 2014 which actually does recognize the existence of banking groups and has provisions to to that to address that for instance you have this group recovery resolution plans you have you know these this this provision that i i talk about in my paper which ad- uh, limits the application of ipso facto clauses in the banking group context which is very unique and and you know you mentioned that some countries indeed have started recognizing the group reality and introducing rules that uh, that try to address it so this is this is fen- a phenomenon that you know i think it's a new generation of insolvency or restructuring laws that we see currently which is very different from the way countries addressed insolvency in the past it coincided with this restructuring law restructuring uh, culture that we see appearing nowadays and in my paper i look into some of these jurisdictions well singapore is one of the i think you have discussed already in your podcast so i'm not i'm not going to dive into the the laws of singapore but singapore is a good example of a jurisdiction that has in a very short period of time implemented a very modern restructuring regime that also takes into account the group context the netherlands the country that i'm currently in and that i like very much also has recently implemented new law that addresses restructuring of enterprise group to one extent or another and so in in my paper that we we discussed today these jurisdiction provide for rules that allow the extension of an enforcement stay for the benefit of group entities for instance those that have provided a guarantee or collateral you know for the benefit of the debtor so the court when uh, imposing a stay has the, the the power to impose it also for the benefit of group entities that are not themselves in in the restructuring procedure right another one is of course the the very problematic ipso facto clause that we discuss right and and in the paper i look into several ways countries try to limit the the enforceability of these types of clauses and i argue that we may interpret these rules to also apply in the group context and i already mentioned the bank recovery resolution directive that does it explicitly so that's the only instrument that does explicitly address the the the, the group situation in another paper that i have written recently and it was published in the beginning of this year i look into a third party release so third party releases is another instrument that is very important to address the group interconnectedness right so third party releases have been in existence for quite some time particularly in common law jurisdictions such as uh, the you know the uk or ireland so those countries adopt a pro release approach and and 
A third party release for those who, who may not be familiar with them basically is the tool that allows you to release or amend the rights of creditors uh, against uh, third parties, which may be group entities. And, and therefore in one proceeding, like in a scheme or a scheme of arrangement, you are able to address uh, liability of this third party. So you don't really need to start another proceeding to open new proceedings. You can just address the group liability in, in a single proceeding, which is quite interesting. You know, this extension effect to, you know, you extend the effect of the release to group entities. Is it that the procedure, the insolvency procedure is actually for one company in the group, but you have these sort of extension of automatic stay to the whole group or in this specific thing you were talking about, the third party release to some other group entity, despite not participating in the insolvency process. Is that how it's working? Yeah, so they're quite similar. You know, the extension of a stay, you extend uh, a stay to protect a related party. And third party release is you actually amend the rights of creditors against third parties, mm. right? So, so you're they're getting very the same similar outcome. in a way. Hmm. They have an extension effect, and this extension effect is quite interesting, right? So, how do we extend the effect of restructuring? to parties that are not themselves a part of the restructuring proceeding, right? But that's what we see currently happening in, in various schemes. So in the past, it was, was mostly common law jurisdiction, but since recently we have third party releases in the Netherlands, for instance, and, and in Germany. So now we see civil law jurisdictions also catching up with, with the common law. But you know, I don't wanna generalize because for instance, the United States does not really allow a, a third party release because they, they believe that it deprives you of the protection that an insolvency procedure guarantees, you know, because, you know, otherwise this third party that benefits and, and the creditor that has a claim against the party cannot really protect themselves because there are no separate proceeding, proceedings opened with respect to, to that third party. So in the US, you can't really um, implement a third party release, which doesn't necessarily mean that U.S. courts would refuse to recognize uh, foreign restructuring plans which have a third-party release. So we, to the contrary, we have seen recent cases where courts in the U.S. were willing to recognize foreign restructuring plans and schemes in particular that include a third-party release. But, you know, again, U.S. is a, is a peculiar jurisdiction. It's, it's, for instance, quite difficult to get an extension of an enforcement state to third parties as well. So in that respect, they, they're quite conservative. It's interesting with the additional point you just made about the recognition of a foreign proceeding, which has this third party release. That's, do you have any case you can recall or at least like which countries proceeding they recognized? Just out of curiosity. Well, I can just refer to the paper that will soon be published that we that I wrote together with Professor Edith Neverak from, from Nottingham and from, with Professor Stefan Madaus from Germany. So there we look into the recognition issue. So the recognition is something, and, and more generally private international law, is something mm -hmm. that I have not addressed in this paper, but this is yeah. something that we pay close attention in this paper that will be published um, very soon. Quite a few cases, for instance, some of them concern the recognition of uh, schemes of arrangements from the UK in the United States, also schemes that or restructuring plans adopted in Canada which include a third party release have been recognized. 
but this is not a general rule. We also saw cases where courts refused to recognize because they found some irregularities or that they, they, they found that the court, the foreign courts did not really consider the interests of, or rights of the parties involved. So I, I, I don't have the names of the cases on the top of my mind, but again, U.S. courts are pay particular attention to very closely scrutinized foreign restructuring plans that include third-party releases. Hmm. Yeah, so I'll definitely check out that paper and hopefully listeners interested in this will also. So I'll put that link in. Um, Just towards the end of the paper, we're currently discussing the one in the Journal of Corporate Law Studies. You have a nice set of proposals as to how intergroup arrangements can be recognized in insolvency proceedings. So can you explain that in a nutshell? Yeah, well, this is this is the part that I, I think I spent quite some time because uh, one of the reviewers of this paper has said that a good academic should actually come up with a set of recommendations. <laughs> initially, I had some, you know, some sort of a conclusion which didn't really have very exact recommendations. But then the reviewers said, actually, you know, a good academic should have them. So then I actually I, I was... enjoyed that part of the paper, so I'm glad you added that. <laughs> Yeah, it took me some time because, you, you, you know, again, as I said in the beginning, there are various types of groups and the businesses and uh, organizational structures, financial structures that groups may, may have. And, and therefore, it's, it's quite a challenge to come up with um, some general recommendations. But then again, I try to look into, OK, so what are the what is the rationale of the of the rules and, and what do they try to achieve and then how can we transpose it to an, an enterprise group context, for instance, and I, I give a separate set of recommendations for, 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 for instance, ipso facto clauses, right? So one of them is that, that they're only, so the, the, the restriction of cross-entity ipso facto clauses are only justified if their application endangers the debtor's financial position, right? And, and, and this comes from the fact that ipso facto clauses are limited because of insolvency, right? So ipso facto clauses, if there's no insolvency, there's nothing necessarily uh, wrong with them because you know they emanate from, from freedom of contract. And unless there is a very important societal uh, goal that, that makes them in, ineffective, right? So we shouldn't really touch them. And, and if the data is not insolvent, then there is no particular reason to limit the application of ipso facto clauses. So the very sort of a general idea. So what, why do we restrict them? Well, because we need to protect the going concern value, right? And if it's not in danger, then we might not need to touch them in the first place. The second recommendation is, is you know, in order to, to contain the encroachment on, on freedom of contract and part is legitimate expectation, something we discussed as well, the unenforceability of cross antipso facto clauses may be limited to specific contracts yeah, you, you, or contracts that include more than one group entity or, or, or link more than one group entity to each other. And, and this is, for instance, the example of the Bank Recovery Resolution Directive, which limits the application of the limits the, the ipso facto clauses in, in two particular contractual arrangements, one that includes or implicates several group entities, the group entities that support each other or impose obligations which are guaranteed by other group entities. So cross guarantees, intra-group loans would typically be these types of contracts that, that create this interconnectedness or interdependentness. Another one is contracts which uh, have uh, cross default provisions in them and that therefore we may end up in a situation when, when the failure 
of one entity triggers this domino-like reaction and, and you know, so other group entities follow the insolvency of a single. So th th that's another example. So we may think of the, you know, what are the situations where we want to uh, limit the, the enforceability of ipsa factor clause. And the third one, I think is, is a very general one, but I think is a very important one to keep in mind. The limitation of ipsa factor clauses pursues the goal of maintaining and increasing the value of the debtor and its affiliates. But most likely this would be the case where the business of a group enterprise is in its core va valuable and, and viable. That's the, the word I was looking for. So if the business is unviable, we may not necessarily need to uh, apply the restructuring law tools because they seek to preserve the going concern value, right? And if the going concern value is, is below the liquidation value, we may actually want to liquidate the company as soon as possible so that the value is not lost in our attempts to preserve it, right? So, and I think viability is a key concept that is probably, that will or should probably be used for many of these recommendations and tools that we look into, right? And for, for the extension of enforcement states, also just a, a few recommendations that I give in my paper. One of them is that these extensions should not be automatic. Well, again, this is an exception than the rule that we need to or may extend the enforcement state to uh, companies that are not subject to restructuring proceedings. Another one is that the enforcement actions against debtors affiliates should not be enjoined where such actions are not likely to uh, frustrate restructuring attempts, right? So the idea is you want to protect third parties because otherwise the restructuring of the debtor will be futile. You know, you, you're not going to reach the, the, the goal or the aim that you're, you try to achieve because other group entities will go down and therefore restructuring will be uh, in vain. So there has to be a reason that you want to extend the enforcement state to third parties. And that reason should be to, to, to achieve the goals of restructuring of the debtor itself. Right? So there has to be some sort of integration and interdependence within a group, because if group really consists of separate independent uh, entities that have really not much in common and they have their own businesses so in those situations, decentralized groups, we may not need actually to extend the enforcement state to these group entities. The third recommendation, again, deals with viability. So we need to look into viability of the, and apply the extension only when the debtor is, itself is economically viable, right? And, and I argue if debtor is unviable, there should be no extension of an enforcement state, but you know, these third parties, group entities, may themselves file for restructuring and insolvency mm. and therefore secure the enforcement stay for their benefits. And the last but the, the critical one is that this extension of an enforcement stay should, should not unfairly prejudice rights and, uh, of the guaranteed creditors or cause substantial detriment to such creditors. So, and that, again, something that I've been thinking quite a bit is you know, what are, to what extent can we recognize this group reality and, and Im implement rules that acknowledge such group reality, you know, and, and which brought me to this concept of a group solution that we can find in the Unstra Model Law and Enterprise Group Insolvency that was proposed quite recently in 2019, you know, what are the limits of a group solution and where is the boundary between 
you know, to what extent can we pursue group solution if it leads to the detriment for specific creditors of legal entities, you know, because we're still dealing with separate legal entities. We don't have substantive consolidation. So how do we, mm. how do we balance the rights of, of, group, of different creditors of different group entities? And, and yeah, that's, a, that's, that's in, in brief the, the recommendation that I came up with in this paper. But of course, there, there, there could be many more that we could think about. But yeah. Thank you for saying that you actually enjoy reading this part. You know, I'm, I'm happy because it took me some time just to, to try to get those core recommendations out of my, my, my head. I did actually. So when I came to the end where you're giving these recommendations, it was really good that it's taking us back to the basics, right? Viability and thinking about, okay, what about rights of creditors, balancing them? So you go back to basics and your proposals are kind of based on that. So that was that was really good. Um, and you said there may be other recommendations you'll come up with in future, and I'm sure your PhD will have more, right? So before I ask about, I don't know if you have other things to tell us about from the PhD right now, or you'll hold on to them for later, but I also wanted to ask how you got into this topic for your PhD in the first place. Oh, that's, that's a good question. Thank you for asking. I was struggling a lot when, when I was choosing my PhD area or, or, you know, the area of insolvency law that I would like to, to specialize in or write my PhD. Initially, actually, I wanted to write about um, insolvency of small, medium-sized enterprises. Mm. So that was my initial topic. Then I got into financial law. So looking into banks and, and how bank resolution is, is regulated in the European Union. And in, in, and that brought me to you know, the topic of enterprise groups or banking groups. And, and of course, this is a really large area to, to write about. So I had to be more selective on what exactly I would like to write about in this, you know, broader area. And I guess I was just reading different um, judgments and, and looking into different cases where a multinational enterprise group went down. So in my PhD book, actually start my PhD book with three examples. So I, I, I look into collapse of Lehman Brothers, a very exciting story. And, and you know, I, I know a lot has been um, written about it, but I particularly like this quote from, from, the, from the book, The Code of Capital by Katharina Pistor, who describes the structure of Lehman Brothers as follows. She says, Lehman Brothers developed the legal partitioning of assets with the help of corporate law into an art form. The business operated as a fully integrated global financial services provider, but its operations, liabilities, and profit centers were divided among hundreds of legal entities. So when you, when you read those cases, so Lehman Brothers was one case, and very integrated enterprise, which implemented centralized cash management system or cash pooling system, another regime or arrangement that we haven't discussed today, but which I discuss in my, in my, in my PhD book is this centralized cash management. And we see those types of arrangements being used by large multinational enterprises. So Lehman Brothers, another one is Nortel Networks, another global enterprise. You probably, many of our listeners are familiar with Nortel because it has given rise to so many cases in different jurisdictions. And of course, there the problem was not the sale of the assets, but the distribution of assets to the creditors 
of separate legal entities you know how do you decide on the distribution of something that was created by all these entities together so they all acted as a single enterprise right but then at the end there are still separate legal entities unless they are of course consolidated which was not the case and the last one that i look into is the uh, bankruptcy of uh, oil of of oil group that was the brazilian telecommunication is still the brazilian telecommunication giant which went insolvent and had to restructure its debts and that included Dutch special purpose financing vehicles, which attracted financing on the capital markets. And then basically they were just entities used by the group as a whole to finance, to access financing on capital markets, and which created many problems for, for, for restructuring of this global enterprise. So these cases are really interesting to, to read about. You know, they, you know, they create so many problems they all have in common the existence of different financial arrangements. So we've discussed cross guarantees, intragroup loans, centralized cash management system. Lehman Brothers, of course, had these cross entity de facto clauses. So this, I think, was, was the driving force, you know, just, just out of curiosity. And, and of course, because of the so many problems that, that, that they bring about, which are not easy to solve. I think that that was the, the rationale, I guess, for oh, the, the incentive for me to dive into this, which I have enjoyed ever since I started looking into these cases. And, and Yeah, that's super interesting, the journey of how you got to the topic. But I really thought as I was reading, I was like, yeah, it's such a good topic. We should be thinking more about this. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's not something you typically, I mean, we, of course, I, I don't want to say that it's you know topic that i'm the only one looking into know that w there are many interesting papers written about it richard squire for instance in the us has has written quite extensively on on cross guarantees in a very you know negative way in a, in a way that they they are not good and we should maybe do something about them and also of course jay westbrook wrote this fantastic paper where he describes how problematic these types of group arrangements are also in part because they're not easily visible for third parties, you know, unlike rights in REM, which are usually registered. So you could actually see whether there is a mortgage, for instance. But when it comes to intergroup guarantees, th th those are not necessarily registered mm -hmm. anywhere. So their validity is not dependent on the registration, which creates a very intricate situation where creditors might not even know about the existence of these sorts of arrangements. And, and, and of course, you know, I'm very interested in, in the phenomena of enterprise groups. You know, it's, it's a very interesting topic to look into and to see how, for instance, limited liability, which was initially created to support individuals, you know, because people like you and I, we could then invest in, in, in a company like a Dutch or English East India Company without being afraid that we will have this huge liability or, you know, but how does that trans, you know, how is that rationale then transposed to these groups of companies? Because, you know, they're quite different from, from us investing in an enterprise, right? So this is very unclear how the idea of limited liability, which, as I said before, was uh, there to protect individual investors and entrepreneurs, how was that transposed to the group context? And Philip Bloomberg at least says there's, there's really little 
understanding why that has happened and, ha and, and, you know, he's, yeah, yeah. I don't want to, you know, I can continue for, for some time, but I know we, we have to probably get to the end of this podcast. Otherwise our listeners would be bored and would decide to <laughs> do their own things. And I would probably do the same. Right? Yeah. So yeah, I'm excited to actually read the outcome of your thesis because you mentioned this is like, I think bait for anyone who likes history. So you have so much of history on this issue in your thesis. So I'm sure many will be interested in that as well. Thanks so much for talking to me today about this. Uh, my pleasure. I, I've enjoyed it so much and thank you so much for inviting me and good job with the, with the podcast. I think it's an amazing podcast and, and I would encourage everyone to tune in. Ah, thank you.